Welcome to Pragmatic Live, a podcast created to help you succeed, especially if you create or market or price innovative products. I'm Mark Stiving, a Pragmatic Marketing Instructor, and I know a little bit about pricing, but today's going to be interesting because I get to talk to a, a gentleman I've never met. However, I've heard of him several times. Uh, many of my students, when they learn that I have a PhD from Berkeley, have taken a pricing class from Berkeley from this gentleman, David Mock. So welcome, David. Hey, uh, glad to be here, Mark. Totally excited to be here to talk about uh, pricing. Uh, so am I. And I, you know, I'd love to sit and take your class sometime just to see what all you teach. And, and I find it fascinating the way pricing people think. Yeah, that that, uh, that that would that would be great if you can't come. Uh, the, the only caveat is uh, you probably can't, can't point out all the things I'm, I'm saying that's wrong, though. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt you're saying much wrong. I doubt you're saying much wrong. So, so we talked for oh five minutes before this started, and one of the topics we said, hey, this would be an interesting topic, is product management in that new product introduction process, and and how they handle pricing in that whole piece. Before I get, share any thoughts, let me just open it up. What kind of thoughts do you have on that? What what issues do you see? Yeah, the, the, hey, that's a great question, Mark. The, the issue that I see with product management program is oftentimes the pricing conversation is honestly the last things that the product manager even um, e even begin to think about. It's and uh, and sometimes I wonder why that is. And my, my my thinking and my view around that point is it's because if you think about what a product manager actually does, he's a very very busy person. He's yes. worrying about schedules. He wor he's worrying about uh, the commercial plan. He's working about you know working on the forecasting. And I can go on and on and on the number of things that a product manager is responsible for, right? And I, I get in different companies there may be different uh, there may be different things on what product managers do, but that, in, in a nutshell, that person does a lot of stuff. And by the way, one of the things he's responsible for is he actually has to go figure out how to price this new product and uh, new products or service that he's working on. And what, what I what I've discovered is you know, sometimes not not ideally, it's often the, it can be the last thing that the product manager actually talks about. But good pricing, and I would make the argument that great prices actually begin with the product manager. Actually, begin with the New product introduction process, and uh, one of the things uh, that one of the things that I try to promote is uh, begin the pricing conversations as early as possible. You know, back uh, back a couple of companies ago, uh, we've actually start the pricing conversations about 18 months ahead of product launch, and we and the pricing conversation uh, that I that I like to uh, begin the conversation actually is before design freeze. Uh, I, and I don't know how many how many pricers can say this, but you're, you're talking to one of uh, one of the pricers out there that was able to actually change product definition before uh, before we actually lock in the design. So ideally, in the ideal world, I think the pricing conversation really needs to start uh, uh, before design freeze, and then and then you work that through you know, throughout the product launch. I got to say that I agree with you 100% on that conversation. Um, I would clarify, we tend to think of product managers, probably the single most important job of a product manager is to define what the product looks like. So they're trying to figure out what the next features are, what the next version looks like, and, and they shouldn't have to rely on a pricing person to come in and say, hey, let's go price these features before we build the product um, so that they can choose which product features to put in. They should, they should have those conversations themselves and, and just like you said, it's long before design freeze. In fact, it's probably when we're talking with 
engineering or design to say, here are the problems we want to go solve. We already know which ones people would pay us to solve because we've thought about that ahead of time. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point, Mark. And, and one of the things that I've noticed with, uh, with some of the product managers, as simple as this may sound, as straightforward may sound, some folks tend to struggle with it. And if I ask a simple question, how does your product or service create value for your customer? Sometimes it's not such an easy question to answer. And the product manager struggles to answer that question in some terms of either functional or my current business, uh, clinical, economic, or psychological terms, then your value proposition is not clear. And, if you, and once you lock down your design and you later discover that perhaps the value proposition is not as strong as you are, there's little you could do at that point. Now it's all about just getting the product out there, launching the best you can, and where you can really, um, uh, whereas if you start the conversation before design freeze, you could actually have a chance to actually impact that value proposition. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think the story is slightly different for software companies than for hardware companies, because we don't, in software companies, we don't have to lock down the design, you know, 18 months in advance. Instead, we lock down the design for an iteration or two, and then hopefully we're testing it and we're saying, hey, is this actually making a difference? Does anybody care? Does it work? Um, so, so we're tweaking as we go. Where in hardware, we don't have that. We gotta lock down the design and we're gonna spend a ton of money building it. So absolutely, we've gotta know ahead of time, are we creating value and does anybody care that we're doing this? Yep, good point. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing is, uh, I think for product managers is you should think of, do you have a framework of how you actually think about the, uh, the go-to-market pricing strategy? What, one of the things that we try, to, we try to promote is, you know, come up with, you know, it doesn't have to be anything, you know, super difficult. We actually create a, a um, concept, what we call a pricing canvas. Uh, and what the pricing canvas is, uh, you know, here, here in the company that, that I'm currently working with, it actually lays out some of the fundamental building blocks in the conversations around um, new product development pricing strategies. And there's nothing actually rocket science about any of those building blocks, but uh, well, what it does is it actually forces the, the conversations to, to make you think through each building block and how they interact amongst each other. And the, the first building block that we always like to start the conversation around is, uh, is who is the target customer? <laughs> and you know what? It sounds simple. Every product marketing guy or, or product managers uh, that I talk to think they nailed that down. But once we start that conversation, what we often uncover, what we often uncover is, is not as easy as uh, what they originally thought who, as a target customer because you get into a lot of the uh, deep conversations around, uh, hey, is this really the, is, you, know, you know, based on who we're trying to segment, is this really the target customer we're, we're, getting, we're getting after? Is, this, is the volume of this target customer big enough? And we have all these debates. And so often we, often we talk around who the customer is, the, 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 size, of the, the size of that uh, the customer, what do they believe in, and what are the behaviors that they exhibit, right? And, and as simple as that question is, who's the target customer? Uh, oftentimes, you don't get that. If you don't get that part right, much of the pricing conversation thereafter kind of falls apart. But if you nail that down, then I think uh, the rest will follow. And one of the things that you know that, that I like to talk about after once we define who the target customer is, to ask, I like to ask the marketing team is, you know, what's what's your goal and what's your marketing strategy? 
right? And then, and I'd like to be able to tie that back to, is, is that goal marketing strategy, is that marketing goal and strategy appropriate for the target customer? And we get into value proposition discussion that we just talked about, right? And uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, some folks are better at it than others. Uh, and, and remember, the value proposition, you, you got to get around, you got to talk about in one of those three things, ideally all three things, the clinical or the functional benefits, the economics, and also the, uh, the emotional benefits that, uh, that your product or services actually offer. And then the offering structure. You know, so is this widget part of a, uh, 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 you know, an overall portfolio? And, you know, oftentimes we, all, we like to think that customers would love to pay how wonderful our products are and customers would love to pay for our, uh, you know, that super premium price we want. But you know what? Not every customer is willing to pay for value. You have an offering structure that actually aligns to where some customers who are willing to pay for value and those who don't. And then once we nail those things down, that's when the conversation around pricing really starts. It's, then we get into the, the strategy, uh, you know, what's the right price level, and then we tag rules and policies associated with it. I got to say that was fabulous. I mean, there's so many things I want to say about it, but, but the two things I'll bring up quickly is the target customer conversation. I think so often people in their minds think they know who it is they're going after, think they know who it is that they're, they're building for or marketing to or pricing for, and yet once you say write it down, it suddenly doesn't become so clear, right? Suddenly you realize they didn't really know, they didn't really have that, and so I think that's amazing that you do that. And then the second thing that I find fascinating is that you actually have this thing you called a pricing canvas. And one of the things I often say about pricing people is that as pricing people, we almost never set prices. All we ever do is teach people how to set prices. And, and so you've got this tool that you've created that you take around your company and you're using that to train product managers on how to, how to get ready to set the price. I, I found that fascinating, awesome. Yeah, it, it's, been a, it's been a big hit um, and uh, something that we uh, just internally develop. Uh, you're not gonna find it in a book or, or, or anywhere, but it seems to be, it seems to be uh, something that uh, is resonating quite well you know, across, the, across the company. And it might be specific to your industry and market segments and things like that. Uh, some of the things you talked about, clinical trials, don't fit in a lot of industries that we teach or talk to. But, uh, but in places where it fits, that's perfect. And having something like that is, is ideal. I, I think that's really good. Now, speaking of your industry, though, you happen to be in the healthcare-ish industry. And, and can I ask a couple really hard questions? Things I, I tend to avoid pricing in the medical fields because of the reasons that I'm about to ask you about. Um, and the first one, which is the hardest by far, is the question of ethics. You know, when I, when I price a product, you give me a software product, a hardware product, uh, I'm gonna figure out how much is a customer willing to pay, that's how much I'm gonna charge, life is easy, and suddenly you have to talk about life and death and health and, and the ethics of charging somebody a lot of money, even though they'd be willing to pay it. What, how do you guys address that or how do you think about that? Yeah, that's that, that's a great question, uh, Mark. And um, you know, one of the things that we like to you know pride ourselves around when we set pricing is the pricing has to be fair, right? So it has to be fair for um, across the board. So is it um, you know first of all we, we we first like to think about our our patient as you know, first and foremost is, is the most important part of the equation. Uh, how do we support our our, our our surgeons and our and our nurses? Um, and then at the end of the day, we still have our light bills to pay, and we have to deliver a profit to the bottom line. 
So one of the things that uh, we do is we look at all those things and make sure that the prices uh, that we set are fair to achieve uh, you know, to, to achieve those things. Where uh, the price is fair, where the, where the surgeons can actually use the product and be, and treat the patient with the highest quality device possible. At the same time, uh, we have to uh, make a profit on our side. So that's fascinating. Um, it's easier, in my view of the world, where all I have to do is maximize profit. Uh, that makes my life so easy. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to add this new thing that we call FAIR on top of that. How do you measure FAIR? Who decides what's FAIR? Yeah, we'll just leave it there. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you know how do you how do you actually determine you know uh, you know fairness in pricing? Uh, you know, one one of the things that you, we look at from a fairness in pricing is um, you know some some of these things you take a look at. It's well, what are the alternatives that are out there, right? And can we actually treat the patient better than a number of the alternatives that's, that's already out there, including our own internal portfolio? So while sometimes we may be charging a premium to the existing products and uh, services that's already that's already out in the marketplace as we launch new products, one of the things that uh, we that with these new technology that our customers will find is it actually lowers the uh, overall cost of healthcare, right? So but what what you pay for the implant uh, may actually end up being higher than existing products and services. But what actually does to a provider or a uh, hospital is actually lowers his cost of, of, of doing business. So our so the OR time might be reduced, uh, you know, for say you know, something that might take uh, our, our competitive products you know three to four hours to do, and if and when we launch some of these technology, we can shrink that OR time from three or four hours to about an hour, right? And uh, so that's something you know. Uh, that we uh, pride ourselves be able to to be able to provide to our uh, customer or, or the surgeons. So in that case, we would be looking for the rightful premium. Uh, but when you add it all in, it's actually at a, a lower cost than uh, than what they're currently paying. And the other thing that we look at is does does that product offer the same, if not higher, quality of health outcomes that um, that the existing process services uh, that that's out there? Yeah, I think that was a fabulous example because. Essentially, what you're saying is, if we can make sure everybody's better off because we have this product, then uh, we can charge up to that point where everybody's still better off. I'll put it that way. And that, that includes the total cost of ownership, the total cost of usage. That's really, that's a nice way to look at it. Yep. Nice way to look at it. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Um, okay, so let me, two of the, the next ones, I'll tie them together because I think they go well together. Uh, one is price transparency. So one of the things about pricing, which is fabulous, is that most people can compare the price of your product with the price of somebody else's product. But in the healthcare industry, when I go to the doctor, uh, one hospital has aspirin that's 10 times the price of another hospital. And I have no idea how to figure that out before I go, what's going on there. And, and I think that's related to the whole insurance industry and the fact that there's a third party payer here. And so that's two softballs I just tossed you. <laughs> uh, pricing through without transparency, and then the third-party payer. Yeah, so I, I think the question is uh, how how do we how do we deal with uh, uh, tra uh, price transparency, right? And uh, yeah, you're right. I think in the in the healthcare world, um, you know, we would charge the uh, the hospital and the char and hospital would then charge insurance company, and then the insurance company would then you know, bill the patient uh, based on the based on the term of the uh, of the insurance contract. Oftentimes, the the neither does the, the patient doesn't have visibility into you know what that uh, what the cost of procedure is. 
right? And, and it varies from hospital to hospital. Uh, I think that's one of those that's one of those hurdles. I think the um, the healthcare industry is going through a, a, a bit of a bit of a reform. Some hospitals can charge a lot of money. No different than if you go to a, a, a restaurant, right? You might, you know, one restaurant might charge you forty dollars for a meal. Another restaurant might charge you maybe a meal, not quite the same, but ten, twenty dollars for the meal. So you do have this wide ranging uh, type of prices. What's my seemingly is the uh, is, is the same products and services, but if you take a look at the total care pathway, uh, sometimes you do see differences in terms of the outcome uh, in, uh, that the patient patient does receive. Now there are you know, I'm sure you read some of those articles where hey it's not clear where sometimes if the outcome is truly different or not, and those are some of the things I think the industry is trying to sort out over time. Uh, now I, I do is my own personal belief that over time I think. I think we're going to find the healthcare industry to be more transparent in pricing. I actually think I actually welcome that. I actually think it's a it's a good thing for the industry. And you know, I've actually worked in a transparent price industry uh, before uh, before moving into healthcare. I worked in the on the uh, on the consumer electronics side, and all our prices are publicly known. You could go to any you know any retail stores out there, and and you could see exactly what prices are out there. And actually. We could actually manage prices better in a in a market transparent price world. The the, the reason why you know, I don't want to get into all the all the healthcare law. It's, it's not I'm not a lawyer, so I can't you know talk with great expertise on this. Part of the reason why you know Congress hasn't moved towards you know mandating uh, market transparent pricing is there's a belief that if once once the industry moved towards a market transparent pricing model, uh, the folks that are on the the folks that are, that are downstream of that, you know, meaning the manufacturers, you know, and downstream of that, could actually get better prices, right? And I'm I actually uh, one of the believers of that because I actually came from a market transparent price world, and when I worked in consumer electronics, I can better message my my pricing to uh, to the industry. I can actually uh, curtail price war in the event that it does start, uh, and and so that's why I think. So by moving pricing towards a transparent price world in healthcare, may actually uh, go, go the opposite of what I think some some folks think uh, uh, transparency will do. Well, that's fascinating. So, so it, you're allowed to say I don't want to answer this question, but can you give us some tricks on how you managed price wars in the consumer goods? Uh, I'm sitting here picturing selling at Best Buy or Amazon or something, and competing with other people selling similar products. At aggressive price points. Yeah, great, great question. When I walked into, when I first walked into the, um, uh, I used to work for a, a, a hard drive company, and we would sell into Best Buy, Fry's, Amazon, you know, the Costco, and, and, and those guys. And when I started uh, in pricing over there, our business, we were actually barely profitable as a business. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact number, maybe somewhere between five to ten percent, somewhere in the neighborhood around five to ten percent, and. Um, you know, in about four to five quarters, we actually posted a 20% plus gross profit and eventually hit 25% uh, and achieved you know, best gross profit percent gross profit dollars in the history of that of that retail business. Wow. So how do we get there and what are some of the tools and tricks of the trade, you know, back in my uh, consumer electronics date? One of the, ch one of the challenges that I saw was, uh, you know, from, from, from a price war perspective, we were doing it to ourselves. And we ourselves, we ourselves was the problem. And typically what would happen is one of our sales guy would call us and they say, 
I heard so-and-so is going to move price down in two weeks. So let's get ahead of them and let's start the list price. Let's start the, the, uh, the price change process now. So in two weeks from now, our prices will be adjusted lower to match the competition. Because if you think about retail, retail is about speed. If you're, if you are slow, you're going to die. You're going to lose volume if you are one or two, three weeks behind your, your behind your competition. So then we, we hear from the sales guys. I, I observed this activity. We hear from the sales guys. We make the price list adjustments and thinking that the competitors actually moved on, moved on price. What I discovered over time is that, well, one of the sales guys asked, so for example, one of our retailers, our retailers would give them information that may not necessarily be true, <laughs> mm. right? And then that starts to change. Sometimes I think there's a couple of dynamics. Either the information that, that the sales guy is getting from a retailer is not accurate, right, because uh, there's some gamesmanship that one's, you know, one retailer might want to play against the other. Do you mean buyers sometimes lie to us? Yes, uh, believe it or not, sometimes wow. buyers do lie. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, buyers do lie a lot. <laughs> right? And our sales guys sometimes, you know, are less than forthcoming on what the truth is because maybe perhaps they think uh, they can get advantage and, and move on price. So, so what we did was we said, hey, look, you know what? You show me if the information is coming from retailer, we're going to be very, very skeptical. You, you produce three different sources that tells me the same thing from three different channels and I'll tend to and I'll tend to believe it. And as we move towards the as we move towards the price change process, up until when I have to pull the trigger, if I am if I am now probing all the websites out there, I don't see indication that our competitor has adjusted their price, we will withdraw from that price change process. And that was one of the things that we did that uh, actually worked out quite well, and uh, we, we, we think uh, we actually unwound some of the poor internal practices that we had around pricing. So your own salespeople and customers were causing you to have a price war with yourself. Price war myself, and then our competitors would have to react. Right. The, the, the thing you have to understand around, on the, especially around the, uh, the, the B2C side, and for those of you who have read the book on the, uh, I think it's called A Strategy and Tactics of Pricing, there's a you know, break-even formula in, in there. The, the challenge of the break-even formula for us in the, on the retail side of the business is oftentimes if you do not follow your competitors' prices closely, you will, uh, your volume will drop significantly or you will actually uh, lose on the, on, the profit, on, the, on the profit dollar side. So that's why when you walk into a store uh, like a Best Buy or Fry's, you'll see a lot of the consumer products are closely priced because of those uh, because of that uh, break-even profit formula. Huh. Excellent, David. This has been fascinating. Can I say thank you so much for your time today? Hey, Mark. Uh, it's been my pleasure, and welcome to uh, join uh, anytime you think I can be of help uh, with your uh, with your audience. I, I appreciate that a lot, uh, and I'm sorry that we ran out of time. But if anyone wants to contact you, how can they do that? Yeah, uh, they can contact me via my uh, Gmail address at uh, David T as in Tom dot M O K at Gmail dot com. That's David T T as in Tom dot M O K at Gmail dot com. Excellent. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, we'd love to hear from you as always. We welcome your questions, suggestions. Uh, please send any comments to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. And don't forget to join us for the next edition of Pragmatic Live.